0: Hey, folks, Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I am back with the great Z-Man. So for those who have recently tuned into the show, Z-Man made a previous appearance on El Nino Speaks, which I will post on the show notes. And you can check it out as well. But before we jump into today's topics, Z-Man, briefly tell my listeners about yourself.
1: Yeah, I've been uh, writing for, oh, this is a 10th year. I started in 2013, so somewhere, I may have already passed, I don't know, I have to check, but somewhere in the summer is probably the 10-year anniversary of my site. I started doing a podcast, I guess, about seven, eight years ago, something like that. Well, maybe not that long, maybe six years ago, I, I don't remember anymore, but so, hey, you know, it's one of those things that just kind of started by accident, and uh, I I write something every day. I used to post things at other sites, Tacky and American Greatness, but now I just do Substack, Subscribestar, and uh, my own site. It's one of those things where, you know, people just follow you, so where you post really doesn't matter that much. So I decided that uh, I'll, I'll only post in either Substack or my own site and Subscribestar. Which is like a Substack clone, but, um, you know, that's where you can find me, the Zman.com, pretty easy to find. And, uh, you know, there's something every day. There's actually sometimes more than one piece a day podcast every Friday, a Sunday podcast for paying subscribers. And it's, you know, dissident politics. It's actually, I, I really shouldn't say it's politics. It's pretty much whatever's on my mind at the moment. You know, <laughs> you know, if I'm, if I'm reading a book on French history or something, then I'll be posting about French history for a while. So it's, uh, it's a variety of stuff.
0: Okay, just curious because I used to follow your content on Tacky Mag a lot. What happened there with regards to your
1: like weekly articles? Yeah, I, you know it's one of those things. I decided I, I was going to. You know, they asked me the woman who runs it. She uh she asked me if I would be interested in putting something up every week, and I, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I, I don't I don't know. They don't really have a huge audience, so. Theodore Tacky Theodoropoulos, you know, he's been long, been a long patron. The guy's in his eighties now. A patron of the various, you know, people. American conservative. He was involved with Pat Buchanan when they founded American Conservative. You know, i even though I've never met him, I know people who know him, and I thought, well, you know, I should say yes because it's just out of respect more than anything. But it wasn't something I really wanted to do for very long. I, I don't like writing for other people. Editors are just a pain in the ass. So, you know, I said I'd do it for six months, and I don't being longer than that and uh finally they were they were just changing some stuff around i think i forget what it was around the holidays last year and uh, i said you know what this is a good time to make a break now you know no offense to to that audience but it's not an audience that i don't already have <laughs> you know all the people who are reading or anything attacking are already reading me anyway and and my my site gets more traffic than their site so i mean what was i really you know, why was i doing that and uh, you know, and I'd rather concentrate on Substack and and Subscribestar. You know, the, the truth of it is, is that you know, developing a paying audience is hard. It takes work, and you really have to to work at it. And the more I work at giving stuff away for free, on a tacky or American concern or what the heck is it, American greatness, or any other place, so you I mean, get inquiries every once in a while. You know, the more I'm doing the free stuff, the less time I have to devote to people who are actually paying me five or ten bucks a month for you know, for paid content. So it just, I think fundamental fairness said that I should spend my time, that extra time on the pay-per-view stuff. You know, and I mean, I think it's just only reasonable. You know, you, if you're paying me five bucks a month and you're getting, what, fifth, uh, a dozen articles a month, that's a pretty good deal. You know, that's better than most people are going to give you. And and so, uh, you know, I, that encourages people to say, yeah, this is a good deal and tell their friends or whatever. You know, if you're only giving them something once a month, then, you know, they're not going to sign up. Yeah, you really do have to look at this stuff as a business sometimes because, because you're, you're the other side of it. The people on the other side tend to look at themselves as customers. And so, um, you know, if I'm, if my business is based on the model of giving everything away for free, then I shouldn't be surprised when people don't want to pay for it. So, so you know, if I flip it around and say, well, you know, a significant 30% of my business is for paying customers and the other rest is, is free, then it makes more sense.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Taki is a legend in this space and he is like a interesting figure because he you said like a really like jet setter type of lifestyle before and like Playboy lifestyle. But now he's turned more into like a patron of conservative politics. Like he's one of the more unheralded figures in the space that has promoted pretty good content over the years. But I also agree that I personally don't like to write for other sites or have to put up with certain editors because sometimes you're going to get like a pretty bad editor on a a website that will dilute your content and whatnot. But that's a topic for a different
1: day. (laughs) Yeah, I I think in this age too, is that everything's platform independent now. You know, if I like, for example, I've had a book review for American Greatness. It was one of uh, Paul Gottfried's books. I did a review on it. All the people who showed up in the comment section at the time were all people who read me. <laughs> I recognize their names. You know, In other words, I brought the audience to them. It I wasn't that I went there and got a new audience. And, and, and that's, just, that's just the reality of it. You have to build your own audience in, in this kind of content because our, our platforms have no institutional strength. They have no institutional power. So they're not really bringing anything to the table. And, and you know, I've written for VDARE. I root for American Renaissance, but those are just, you know, these are people who are aligned with me in some way, and it's more of a favor to them than it is a, uh, you know, a a business transaction for sure. And I don't expect, you know, to be addressing an audience that's um, fundamentally different than my audience, although I think VDR audience is a little different than my audience because it's, you know, primarily, well, first of all, it's older and second, it's, um, you know, it's it's, uh, focused on immigration and practical politics. But still, I think we all have to look at ourselves to some degree. If we're in the content creation side of, of politics as independent contractors, we're, we're all, we're all, sh- you know, the, uh, the independent, uh, warrior in feudal Japan, you know, <laughs> we're, uh, uh, what do they call those guys? The guys without a, not shoguns, but, um,
0: Oh, Ronin. Yeah. So that's the nature of the content game now. Okay. So let's got, get right into some of the main topics here. You wrote prior to the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn certain facets of affirmative action um, about like the implications of affirmative action. What do you make of the latest Supreme Court ruling, and will it portend the death of racial preferences being used for hiring and college admissions in the near future?
1: Well... I don't think it's a near future thing. I, you know, there's an old expression in the, in the uh, science world that uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. And, and what it means is that, you know, as, you know, you have this generational sort of consensus. And as that generation dies off, then the next generation can challenge that consensus and come up with new things. It's a bit of an overstatement in science, but it's very true in the law and politics. You know, I did a post about a, a booklet written by a law professor. With regards to the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1950, what four, I think it was. And the logic of that decision has warped jurisprudence for 70 years now. And we're just starting to begin the process of peeling that back. But we're going to have to wait for all the boomers to die, all the boomer lawyers, all the boomer law professors. Probably the the Gen X generation who grew up in the boomer shadow, you know, my generation, you know, it's going to it's going to take a long time if it happens at all to peel this back, because fundamentally, the logic of the our, our jurisprudence says that diversity is the ultimate good and discrimination of any kind is an ultimate bad. That's that's the twin powers, uh, twin uh, you know pillars of uh, of our sort of jurisprudence as a country. That's the moral framing. And to roll that back is going to take a long time. We've got to find ways to nibble around it. And you saw in the court decision a little nibbling at it saying, well, wait a second. Diversity in itself is no longer a justification for discriminating against in the case of Harvard Asian students or in the case of North Carolina you know, white students. And you know, you have to come up with some other reason. Diversity isn't enough. So it nibbles away at diversity being this great ultimate good. And so they'll have to come up with something else. And, and they'll, they'll come up with something else. They'll, they'll uh, John Roberts actually gave them an out and said, hey, you know, you can talk to them about how race or racism or the discussion about race has impacted their life. Well, everyone's going to quickly figure out that if you if you uh, in the essay portion of your college application, you put in a story about how. You're, you're talking to your great grandfather about separate water fountains. Well, you're probably a black guy, you know, <laughs> then, well, we'll be, you, know? <laughs> you know, we're going to have all this. Stuff. I mean, this exists all over the place, but, but fundamentally it's, it's illogical. The whole, the whole civil rights idea is illogical because it counters what we know about human beings. And just even, the, you know, it, not, we don't have to get too metaphysical about egalitarianism or the blank slater and that kind of stuff. We just simply focus on the fact that at every aspect of your life every day of your life when you meet someone you judge them by their appearance and race is a part of that You, you do we all do it's just we're we're literally bred to do this because you know my cat does this my cat when it comes upon something new immediately begins to judge it based on what it sees it's just the way animals operate and you know you go into a neighborhood and you see Lots of nice middle class people and well manicured lawns and, you know, all the other stuff we associate with middle and upper middle class suburbs. You think, Oh, this is a nice area. I'm going to like this. Unless you're a guy from the ghetto. If you're a guy from West Baltimore, this, this going to seem weird to you. It's alien. You don't understand it, you know, and it's just, it's just human nature. So inevitably we're going to notice race. We're going to judge people on race and, you know, not always, you know, we're not, we're not always going to be proud of our judgments for sure. But we're we're going to make them anyway. It's just, you know, just the way it is. And so to have an ethical regime of either anti-racism or uh, colorblindness is impossible. And in fact, it's immoral because, you know, the fundamental of ethics is that you, you can't be compelled to do that, which is impossible. So since we can't make people colorblind and we can't keep people from having opinions about race and ethnicity and class and all the other stuff that make us up, and we won't be able to stop people from acting on those opinions and judgments and so forth. Then it's unethical to have a moral regime in the law that says that these things are prohibited. It just—it's just going to take a while to get to that, though, because you know we have all these people invested. I mean, the the, the civil rights rackets. I mean, it's a huge industry. I mean, somebody told me well a, a few years ago. Somebody told me that they went to a diversity convention at part of their their uh, corporation. They got sent. To, it was like for. uh diversity managers and consultants and all this stuff. And there was like 2500 people at this convention. <laughs> and it was in Las Vegas, you know, it was a it was an A-list convention. And uh, diversity itself is probably a billion dollar industry. Civil rights is a multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, I mean what we saw here is the beginning of the slow erosion of this irrational civil rights regime, but I won't live to see the end of it. I mean, unless, you know, a meteor strikes or empire collapses or something like that
0: yeah this entire civil rights ethos is pretty much like what Paul Gottfried talks about how elites view any type of like behavior when it comes to how you people associate with one another and the type of like prejudices and like preconceived like beliefs they have as like some type of illness that has to be cured. And like treated by this like therapeutic state, if you will, because the entire point of this like therapeutic state is to engage in massive behavioral modification at scale that's going to entail like the wholesale like destruction of the rights of association and all sorts of other basic liberties that most Westerners have taken for granted. I think that this is going to be a long term process to reverse because some of these measures passed during the civil rights eras were like great leap forwards for the managerial state that's going to take like both like judicial
1: and legislative action to roll back yeah I, I think it'll go faster in some areas than others i mean and you know because fundamentally the evolution of society is much more practical than the people in it honestly I, I think i said this somewhere i don't really care that harvard discriminates if harvard came out tomorrow and said look we're a private university." And we don't take any government funding. I mean, they get it indirectly through government contracts, but they're performing a service for it. And uh, their students get some government money, but the the students are the ones getting the money, not school, at least not directly. So if the new regime said, hey, Harvard, you can discriminate all you want. And Harvard came out and said, that's great. We're only going to allow left-handed ginger midgets. Our next class is just, that's all it's going to be, left-handed ginger midgets. Who cares? Good for Harvard. It doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't affect nobody. I mean, Harvard is a tiny little portion of our society on the other hand if the government contractors no longer can use race to edge out better competitors you know because that happens thats a, it's a huge i mean that's trillions of dollars worth of money is decided based on uh, you know these racial factors I, I've, I've used this example all the time in in around the the, um, the imperial capital all the it contractors that serve the government not all of them but a majority of them are south asian indians and pakistanis they, they come in and they, because people don't realize there's a separate set aside for South Asians. So if you can tick South Asian on your, your application, you get ahead of the guy who can't tick that box or tick another similar box. So they have basically gamed the system. Every If you do government business, one of the things you run into is that you're always talking to guys with a thick Indian or Pakistani accent in the IT world. <laughs> they, they've come to dominate it. And it's because of this goofy racial set aside. I know of businesses Black owned businesses that don't actually perform a service other than to be listed as a subcontractor for a general contractor to get a government contract because they can say, I have a, a majority black vendor or I'm a, a woman owned business. If you got rid of that stuff, that's a huge impact on life. All of a sudden now, you know, all these scam artists can't use this set aside system to, you know, work uh, trillions of dollars worth of money out of the taxpayer. You make a huge difference. So that I would care about. I mean, that actually makes a difference. Whether Harvard discriminates or not, who the hell cares? I mean, I, I just don't. It doesn't matter. But I think that's that's probably what we'll see first. We'll see somebody sue the government. You know, sue, you know, find a way to, to to sue for these actual quota systems in government contracting, and that that will be one that the that the court can easily uh, address, because after all. It's so crooked and corrupt. No one's going to be sympathetic to these people getting, you know, having their their uh, their freebies taken away. So the court will feel safe, you know, to to rule in favor of uh the plaintiffs. And in the end, it actually serves the interests of the elites because they do have a big problem. Elites have a huge problem of of competency. Their vendors are idiots. I mean, they're they're increasingly incompetent. They're seeing it everywhere. You know, it's becoming a topic of conversation. So you you know, I think we'll see this. The regime erode, but in bits and pieces. So you might see it happen fast in some area like government contracting, but slow in other areas, private employment. You know, you're still going to have the problem of counting heads and making sure you have a diversity program and that kind of stuff. That'll probably go on for decades. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to sound totally negative. I think, you know, some things will will happen quicker. Some things will just take a very long time or may never really, you know, we may never live to see them.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good point because one thing that really characterizes the cultural left and separates it from like other political factions is their like, relentless pressure and desire to affect political change at all costs, even with this affirmative action case, for example, dealing a blow to them. I can imagine they're gonna find other ways to implement racial preferences and whatnot. How do you think they'll go about doing this, like to circumvent like uh the Supreme Co- like the recent Supreme Court decision and other efforts to roll back affirmative action?
1: Yeah, I mean th- th- that's that's a pretty easy one to do, really, because it, it, it's funny what people don't understand is that much of the like it, if you. I mean, I'll grant I'm a little out of date on this stuff, but when I, uh, about 10 years ago, I used to know a guy that was on the uh, admissions board for a Ivy League school. I can't give away too much because I don't want to dox him by accident. And and he had all these great stories. I mean, they would look through the applications You know, They had this process to filter out and they ended up with basically different piles. You know, they, oh, here is the group of black guys. Here's a group of black gals. You know, they, they they had all kinds of ways to do this. That the people who were actually doing the final evaluations, and even people with, within the evaluation process, didn't really understand. It just kind of evolved it, because everybody agreed. It's wonderful. Everyone feels great when a poor black guy gets accepted into this university. I mean, it really would have got down to. And, and I look, I ran into this as a young person when I was in my high school a million years ago. I got recruited by uh, Williams College, uh, no, not Williams, Amherst College. And I had really good test scores, but I was poor. I came from a poor family. I clearly ticked all the box of being poverty. And they started sending me letters, basically saying, "Hey, we really are looking for poor people like you." And it was it was kind of insulting, even at a young age. <laughs> i like, "Wait a second! You're, you're not you're not appealing to me because you think I'm smart. You're appealing to me because I, I you think I'm a hobo. That I you know I have a rope belt and I wear you know uh, burlap sacks." But that's that's what it was. I mean, I was forty over forty about uh, forty years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, forty years ago now. So you know, and even into ten years ago, this this had matured to the point where they have a million little ways to figure this out because it's really not about ideology as much as about these people congratulating themselves for being good people. That is, that is the biggest part of it. The, the guy I, I talked to about this, he said there would be women. He, he talked about women who would be almost in tears talking about certain applicants because they ticked all the boxes. You know. They were from the south, they were black, they were poor, you know. Oh my goodness, look at what we're going to do. It's almost like they started feeling like they were Christ. You know, they were saving these poor little lambs from the lions. You're not gonna change that with any kind of rules. So that'll still go on. And it'll just be a little bit less overt about it. You know, and 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 let's face it, the Ivy League's problem is not really white people or black people, it's Chinese people. That's the ones they don't like. They don't like all the Asians coming over, because a lot of them are foreign students. And they can solve that problem through other means. You know, they can, they can get the government to crack down on foreign student visas or something and, and, uh, and, and satisfy it. So I, you know, I just don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be too optimistic about it. I think if you are, if you are a male and you have anything on the ball, make sure that you get some good IQ tests and put your scores on your resume and your applications. And that'll take care of you as you try to enter the world <laughs> as you try to build a career in life because as an employer i can tell you if somebody sends me a resume and it's got uh their stanford binet or their whisk score on it i'm gonna hire that guy because i have somebody on the ball
0: uh agreed on all fronts now for continuing on this like culture trend there have been some forms of right-wing victories if you will i say gradual and small victories, but victories nonetheless against like the rise of transgenderism and other forms of cultural degeneracy as certain states have been implementing measures to block like sexual transitions for minors and other controversial procedures. Do you think that this is a sign that like the transgender agenda is finally receiving some significant pushback
1: and it's largely plateaued? Yeah, I think the whole grooming of children, which is essentially what it is, you know, allowing these ghouls and lunatics to get, you know, to take control of people's children and do all sorts of sick things to them. It is the bridge too far because, look, you know, people can, will put up with a lot of things. They will be degraded in all kinds of ways in order to feel as if they're within the moral consensus. But there are limits. You you, you cannot push so far. And and look, you know, you're, you're talking about the very extreme biological limit. You know, we as a species are, are purpose built to defend our young, you know, even when they're not directly our young, they're just our tribes young. And this is a well-understood thing in evolutionary biology. You know, it goes back a 100 years, more than a 100 years. So a guy named Haldane, you know, it, you know, it was, you know, I would give my life for my brother and two cousins and four second cousins or whatever it might be, you know. In other words, the closer someone's related to you, the more likely you are to sacrifice your own life for them because, in effect, you are defending the DNA of your people. And, and this, I mean, the Greeks understood this to a, to a great degree, even though they had no idea how DNA worked. And when you are going after people's children, I mean, you are violating the prime directive of the of the human species, of any species. You know, you you get too close to a a bear cub, the mother is going to come and try and kill you. I mean, this is this is just you know crazy what they decided to do. But I think in the process, I think they've revealed things about themselves that most people didn't realize, and that is the sadisticness of it. The really, these are not good people. They're not, you know, most people look at the look at the left and they think they're mistaken
0: oh well, you know, that's attention. a different thing
1: yeah 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 and and th- this really really became a huge problem for them because you, you can't there's no way you can say there's good intentions mutilating a child and, and now you're getting all these stories out where you know these butchers have uh you know chopped up pubescent girls and boys and and the, you know, their lives are ruined and, and i mean there's no fixing it you know and uh it, it's it just strikes people at a level that it goes beyond anything else, you know. You you can put up with the pronoun nonsense. You can say that, well, I'm gonna to have to pretend that Bob from accounting, who's now wearing a dress, we're all gonna pretend he's barred, you know? We'll we'll do that. Cause you know what? It doesn't cost me much to play make believe with Bob. I, I you know I mean I, I can just ignore Bob for the most part and a little bit of inconvenience here or there. And and you know, because we are just efficient and we're we're all socially efficient to some degree. And some most people are very socially efficient, so we just look and say, "Hey, what's the easiest thing for me to do?" Okay, I'll play make believe with Bob and my supervisor, and he can run around in the uh, sundress all day. I don't care. But when, as soon as Bob says, "Oh, and by the way, I'm going to go," uh, you know, he comes over to your house with a pair of scissors. and Says, "I'm here to see your son." That's it. Okay, no, we're we're done now. <laughs> we, we go the other direction, and uh, and and I think that's that's what um, that's what's been revealed here. I mean, and, and look, this is uh, shocking in a way. I mean what some of these people are actually advocating you know they're talking about taking children away from their parents on the word of a school teacher who said oh i saw little billy playing with uh, a barbie you know i mean this this is beyond lunacy i mean this is really it's sadistic it it strikes people as as sadistic and uh and 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 deliberate and i think that's why that movie i forget what is it called um but mel gibson is involved with this movie about uh, child trafficking You know, it's doing all these big numbers, even though the movie theaters are making people sit without air conditioning and turning the volume down and that kind of stuff. It's doing all these great numbers because it strikes a chord with people that, hey, these bastards are coming for our kids. And and it's a good sign. I mean, I you know, you want we don't want people thinking rationally. We We want people pissed off. And the more pissed off they are, the bad guys, the better it is for the rest of us.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No more you seeing lifeless like charts and statistical figures to get people riled up. This kind of stuff is very primordial that and just like demonstrating it through like a simple video or whatever will will do the trick because yeah like you said this is literally a back to basics moment that should get people really ticked off just for like simple biological
1: and reproductive reasons. And that, that should suffice ultimately. Yeah. See, this is the reason they, they moved heaven and earth to get Tucker Carlson removed from Fox News. I mean, it, it was an enormous project to get him removed from Fox News. I mean, a lot, I mean, a lot was expended to it. And, and I, I said this at the time when it happened. I actually, I said it before it happened. So I, I guess I can pat myself on a little, on it back on a little bit is that the thing that he did was make it okay. Not just okay. He made it cool to ask the question, why or who said this or who says? And it started when the, the whole diversity thing, when he said, you know, he did some bit, a, a, a show on uh, diversity. He said, well, who decided diversity is a is a good thing? Who says diversity is our strength? You know, and, and he just kept going on, you know, that what Tucker way. And there's no answer for that question. So that's why they don't want you to ask the question because there isn't an answer. Well, who said this? Well, nobody said it. These guys just made this crap up and are imposing it on us because it benefits them in some way. And if you allow someone to, who question their moral authority, the whole project starts to unravel. That's why they freaked out about from that point on, Tucker Carlson became public enemy number one for the regime. And they finally got rid of the guy and they're still going to go after him. I, I, look, I'm, I'm sure that they're going to try and litigate it, him into silence because he makes asking questions cool. Uh, he makes asking the wrong questions sound cool. And, and that's a very dangerous to people who, uh, you know, who rely on a, a moral framework to, uh, to justify their authority. You know, when you, you can, you know, it's like, um, it's a question I do on Twitter when some, some, uh, guy starts complaining about the lack of vote, black people at some event, there was some post, someone posted a picture of like a, I don't know, family reunion or something. It was like a whole bunch of people at a big table outside. And he says, you know, how come there's no black people there? And my, my question was, why do you think you have a right to white people? Well, that's not a question. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, you know, th- those kind of questions are very, very dangerous. And, uh, but you know they're the kind of questions people are starting to ask, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, I, I think I, I've said this a long, long time ago, and I, you know, I, you know, there's some things I say. I mean, I say a lot of things, and a lot of them turn out to be kind of stupid. But every once in a while, I do kind of stumble on something that's it, that right. And I, I think this was like when Trump was running. I said, you know, you'll know the revolution has come when some politician stands up, a Republican or a conservative, in front of a crowd, and starts talking about racism, and you you, you hear silence, and then a little laughter. And then before long, it's a cascade of laughter people are just laughing about the ridiculousness of someone preaching to them about racism. That's when you know the revolution has come because people have abandoned this this moral framework and no longer are no longer trapped by it. They say, "Okay, you call me whatever you want. It doesn't matter because I don't believe in that stuff." And and that, that that's the hard thing for people to get through their head. You know, if somebody said to you, "Hey, Jose, you shouldn't eat pork because it's it's uh, it's haram." And, uh, or it's uh it's not, you know I mean you, you would laugh right you laugh It's yeah, like I'm yeah, not yeah. a Muslim yeah exactly well and so when someone says well hey uh you know you you're a, a homophobe well I'm sorry uh, that's not my religion <laughs> I'm a am <I'm laughs> a, a Catholic I'm a Catholic we don't have that problem so <laughs> you know you, you try something else and and that's the that's how people have they got to start to be conditioned and I think it's happening you're seeing it with this whole trans business you're seeing it with this child exploitation movie I forget what the hell it's called and and you know you notice that out uh, that uh, one of the things which is i find amusing is that a lot of these people uh you'll see it on twitter where they'll start being uh, called a groomer or you know they'll 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 intermix child molester with transgender (laughs) and it makes makes them crazy because you know you, you can never morally justify being a child molester or being a groomer and uh people freely using this kind of moral language to shame these people that's a good sign and i you know i we hope i hope to see more of it. i hope it becomes a trend
0: oh same here yes i i do hope that this becomes a normal like aspect of political discourse to keep these people in check and everything like that now as far as keeping people institutions in check we have seen the right now start to mount some boycotts like against like Bud Light and Target. And it seems that they're actually somewhat breaking through because back then it was always a massive ordeal to build a type of like esprit they core with the right to get them to like undertake some form of collective action against like the left or any organization or institution that pushes leftist values. Do you believe that this could be a sign that that the right will be able to mount
1: more effective forms of resistance in the future. It could be. I mean, I, I will be the first to admit I was wrong about the Bud Light thing. I, I, my sense was it would be a one or two day thing, and that would be it because I've seen this before. But this really, really did take off, and and it became a it became a fun thing. You know, one of the reasons that Trump won in twenty sixteen. Was those Trump events, whether you were at them or watching them, they were fun. Fun, yes, hundred percent. It was all these, and it was, and what was barely made it fun. It was all normal people who, who you know with whom you could relate, who were all having a good time while they were agreeing with you. And this is the same sort of phenomenon that's happening with these uh, cor- corporate boycotts on the right. And look, I'm old enough to remember. When I was a little boy. Uh, I guess I, I was probably it was one of my earliest memories. So I was like, you know, kindergarten maybe. And I wanted grapes. I like grapes. My mother was at the grocery store, and I said, I wanted grapes. And she says, no, we're boycotting grapes. Now, I was too old, young to understand what this means. But looking back on it, it was back during when Cesar Chavez was trying to organize farm workers. And one of the things he called for was boycotting certain foods because that would send a message. Well, my mother was not a political person, but she just heard that good people do this. Good people boycott buying grapes and she wants to be a good person. So she would boycott grapes. She would deny her child a grape (laughs) because she wanted to be a good person. Well, now we're seeing this on the right where you might not care at all about Bud Light or trannies or any of this stuff, but you know, good people don't buy Bud Light because, well, they support bad things. And that's a, that's a very powerful tool because it's not about facts and logic it's about a sense of social connection you know about being a part of something and and that's 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 good stuff that's powerful stuff you know and especially like with target and i look i know i know this hurts a place like target cuz I, I i my business dealings i i have some sense of what goes on at some of these uh, big box stores having done some work for them and i know some some people who are executives at at these places and their margins are so thin they really do worry about this stuff. And, you know, we saw this with Target, which was one of the first companies to come out and be in favor of letting men in dresses chase your kids around the toilet. And that was back four or five years ago when they said, well, we're going to have, uh, you know, trans bathrooms. But you'll notice this time, they quickly pulled that pride stuff back because they, they can't afford it. They simply cannot afford, retail cannot afford to take this kind of hits. You know, Budweiser has even had to slowly wind it back and that's good i mean that's a good thing i mean you know the best thing that we can have in this country or any country is that when the people in charge lie awake at night afraid of the people that's what you want you want them to always think hey one misstep and i'm swinging from a tree you know i can't screw up because if as soon as these bastards get comfortable as soon as they feel like they can do what they want their worst instincts come out The most horrible aspects of their personality become public policy and um you know, if, if you go, there's a, a letter that Jefferson wrote to Stoddard. It's the famous um, letter where he wrote uh, the tree of liberty, you know, is fueled by tyrants and patriots. But if you read the whole letter, he makes the point that this is the only way you can have a free society is that the, the people in charge basically have to worry about the revolt, worry about the peasants deciding to hang the bastards. That's the only way you could have a free society and and that that's true then and it's true now so i I encourage this stuff I mean I wish it went further I mean I wish we had angry mobs throwing uh, cases of Bud light through the windows of the Bud Light corporate office <laughs> that, would, that would be even better you know you know you, you see scenes of Bud Light executives getting on airplanes and fleeing the country yeah that would be awesome you know <laughs> but uh, you know I'll take what I can get.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way too with a lot of woke uh corporations. This is the one situation where I will be quote unquote situationally Bolshevik and just encourage people to just be ransacking these like uh corporate headquarters and just like defiling that stuff because frankly these people like deserve
1: to get punished in like the harshest of terms. And yeah. See, I think there's a strain of libertarianism that got overrun by the left libertarians, the Reason magazines, the Koch brothers sort of stuff, you know, the left libertarianism. But the old sort of paleo libertarians would make the argument that having your rights abused by a corporation is no better or worse than your rights being abused by the government. Because the corporation can only exist at the pleasure of the government. You know, they are the ones who make it possible. They license it, make the entity exist. So one is really the extension of the other. And, and it's a good way to look at it. You know, if Google, you know, d- d- tries to harm my, my rights as a citizen and we're supposed to be in a rights-based society, well, that's just as wrong as if the government does it. And so when these corporations start launching these, uh, culture wars on people, it's no different than when the Congress tries to do it or your state government tries to do it. It should be met with the same response. And, you know, and that means the, uh, you know, civic on un- civil unrest, you know, we, we can't vote out the, board of uh, of uh directors at anheuser-busch but we can stop buying our product you know and uh and i was really impressed by the fact that people you know i pointed out when it first happened that ab inbev anheuser-busch inbev is this global corporation have 30 percent of all global beer sales and 50 percent of beer sales in the united states so not buying bud light is probably not gonna make a difference because people would switch to some one of their other brands People quickly figured this out and said, no, boycott all of them. <laughs> Here's the list of brands you need to not buy. It wasn't just Bud Light. So, uh, you know, that's that's another encouraging sign. People are wising up to how things really work. You know, you, you walk into the beer store, and it's really two companies who are selling you beer. It's uh, Molson Coors and uh, AB InBev. They have 80, like 82% of the market. People are figuring this out, and that's good. You know, that, that's a, that's another good thing.
0: Yeah, but yeah, this
1: is a very good trend and
0: I hope it continues in effect.
1: Well, you know what else it does too is that for most of my life, people on the right, however you want to define it, had this sort of one-way relationship with corporate America. You know, we well, we love entrepreneurs. We love the, the, the bold businessman. We love Ivan Bosky. We love uh, Gordon Gekko. We love these guys and. It was a stupid love affair. You know, we, we were a, uh, we were in an abusive relationship and, and now people are starting to say, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to get a divorce from these guys and we're going to treat them like, you know, anybody else who's, who's, uh, treat us like crap. That's a good thing. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Bolshevik. I joke around sometimes that I sound like a Bolshevik, but you know, I've been around in and around big corporations my whole life. They're just as bad as government when it comes to. Treating people horribly, sometimes they're even worse than the government because at least with the government you can you can go and and uh, into a court and say, "Look, the government shouldn't be allowed to do this, and a judge will reasonably hear what you have to say oftentimes in a corporation, you don't get to do that you know you don't have there's no way for you to go to anybody and redress a grievance and and so I think um you know people getting more cynical about corporations and people in the right getting more cynical about business and how it functions i mean, and looking at corporations as a tool. You know, instead of looking at corporations as a great end in themselves and business is a great end in itself and that it's actually a means to something else, you know, we want our companies and our business people to further our cultural agenda. If you do that, you're useful. If you don't, then you're not useful. You know, that, that's how we have to look at it because that's how the other side looks at it. Yes, 100%. Yeah, you know, They came to terms with this, you know, but I'm old enough to remember when every lefty would hate corporate America. Now they all love corporate America because they've co-opted corporate America.
0: That's really how... The right needs to start behaving. They shouldn't be fully shackled by uh, ideologies that don't allow them to maneuver politically effectively. Yeah, that's that's been my opinion for some time because at some point you have to realize that it goes back to the friend-enemy distinction. You want to like pursue policies and measures that benefit your faction at the expense of your rivals and not doing and not engaging in political behavior that is like town to mount to like political self-flagellation
1: yeah i mean if, if you if the goal of your politics is to lose you have bad politics i mean i just <laughs> there's no other way around it i mean you know it's funny about is the weird thing is, is i would bet that most people who call themselves conservatives are sports fans and they they would if their favorite football team or soccer team or lacrosse team or basketball team, whatever, if the coach talked like a typical conservative politician, they would throw their television off the roof. What the hell is this idiot talking about? Well, we lost, but we we stuck to our principles. (laughs) (laughs) They would literally riot and chase the coach out of town. I mean, they would never put up with that. Yet we put up with it with with politicians all the time. And it it really is. I've said this a million times is that we, um, we have this weird political brain that exists almost independent of our normal brain. You know, we, we just have this strange way of judging things. You know, the example I always use is that some stranger shows up in your neighborhood. Normally, you wouldn't you would say he's a stranger and you want to know something about him before you, you trusted anything he said. But yet, if he comes up and says, you know, I absolutely agree that Trump was a great president. You will believe anything he has to say from that point on. You know, you don't know anything about the guy, but you'll just accept whatever he has to say because he agreed with you about Trump or whatever it might be. And, and we, we have to flip that around. We have to start using our common sense brain in politics and, and not instead of our political brain.
0: Yep, 100%. Now, immigration, this is going to take like a more cynical route because it seems like this problem is not going away. And it's actually worsening in many respects as like the border is constantly surgrushed on a daily basis do you think that immigration will ever be tackled like head-on by the political class or will this just be like something that they're just going to continue to allow until like some cataclysmic event happens or there's like a state collapse
1: yeah i'm i'm pretty cynical about this one i mean i think you know i've always been kind of a a softy on immigration in the sense that i think yeah, you know, you have a reasonable amount of immigration. It's fine. You know, you you want um, you know to make sure that people who are coming in are going to work hard and and they're the kinds of people who will be good characters and fit into the country and all this stuff. And there's ways to do that. And you know, the biggest way to do it is actually to you know kind of put people on probation. You know, people forget that in the early waves of immigration in the 19th and early 20th century, at least a third of people came here and said this ain't working for me, and they went back home. You know, self deportation is a big part of of immigration. It always has been. And then you could set up a set of conditions and say, "Well, hey, you know what? Well, we want to, you know, have the people who self-deport are the people we don't want here anyway, so we can put rules in place." You know? and, and then you can then have, you know, a reasonable, modest immigration like we had for most of the 20th century. That, that works fine. But you know, obviously, things went haywire in the last 30 years. But I, I, I'm not sure that it, it changes until something terrible happens. And you know, look, we, we allowed immigration to get out of control in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And then anarchists and Bolsheviks started conducting terror campaigns against rich people. They blew up the LA Times building. They sent they set letter bombs to all the wealthy Americans around the country. And fortunately, someone got uh, tipped off and uh, interdicted these uh, these letter bombs. Uh, one person got blown up. But uh, but then the, the, the real topper was they, they set off a wagon. It looked like a water wagon. I and mean, this is the 19... 19- Teens, so so you know the horse drawn water wagon was on Wall Street right in front of the J P Morgan building. It was full of dynamite, and it blew up. It killed a whole bunch of uh, stockbrokers, killed a bunch of rich people. All of a sudden, they all got religion on immigration. Whoa, wait a second! (laughs) They went and they just arbitrarily rounded up a whole bunch of Italians and Jews and deported them because they said, "Hey, we know these guys are anarchists and Bolsheviks." So off they go. And any you know there was no judicial review. They they got real serious about it. And then you had a whole bunch of of laws passed to sharply cut back on immigration. And it stayed that way in really into the 1980s. And and it was because, you know, they learned a hard lesson. If you bring in a bunch of people who really aren't going to fit in, they're going to find some way to express their frustration. And it very well could mean blowing you up or or killing you. And I think that's what we're going to that will have to happen. You'll see, you know, uh, some sort of crime problems in wealthy neighborhoods or something. I mean, I think that's the only or social instability. Because I look I, I haven't been I'm gonna be in Texas in September. And it's been a while since I've been in Texas, but people tell me that there's large parts of the of the Texas now you just don't go to because it's it's lawless. You know, there it's just there is no law. It's, just, it's an open border. You got drug gangs who are operating in the open and probably true in Arizona I and mean, and parts of California now and at some point you know this becomes unmanageable you know it becomes it gets to a point where you have to start doing extraordinary things and you know look there's talk that there's a plan being brewed to start using the military against the drug cartels because you know in Mexico who really runs things it's the drug cartels who are running most of mexico now so uh yeah you know, i mean it it's going to come to something like that i think you know that's when They have the excuse. You know, they have the excuse. Because you got to remember is that the people in charge, they have their own weird morality. And inside that system, it is completely forbidden to say bad things about immigration. It is just an article of faith that all immigration is good and you're not allowed to question it. But if all of a sudden, you know, a bomb goes off, then it, all of a sudden it becomes well, you know, immigration is good, but we've got to do something about the bad immigration. There's your opening. All right. Well, uh, we're we're still like immigration, but we're just going to have to close the border for a while until we get a handle on it. You know what I mean? You know that's how you kind of get this change in the moral tone. It gives them an excuse, and uh, you know, I, 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 because otherwise there's no convincing them. I mean, it's crazy that both parties are they just refuse to even discuss it. And uh, you, you can be sure. I mean, even Trump has largely dropped the immigration issue. You notice that he goes out on his talks. He's not talking about immigration anymore because, you know, it, it, he got so much flack for it. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not hoping for rich people to start getting blown up, but I'm not going to shed any tears if it happens and it happens to come at the hands of uh, immigration enthusiasts.
0: Yeah, especially if these uh, rich people are part of the mass migration boosting class and like, that benefit tremendously from cheap labor and that stuff. I'm not going to be shedding a tear whatsoever. In, in fact, in a really twisted way, this is
1: just desserts for the, the policies that they promote. Well, look, I, 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 look when DeSantis sent that busload of immigrants to Harper, sorry, it, it was a tell about him. It showed he was a, a, instinctively a, a cautious man. He's not a brave man. Because what he should have done when he did that and everybody got mad at him is he should have sent 10 buses up to Martha's Vineyard. You know, that's what he should have done and, and send them to places like Chevy Chase, which is where all the rich media, Washington media people live, you know, hit, hit these kinds of places. And that, there's there's no defense to this because I mean, look, I mean, it was hilarious watching them try to, uh, you know, evict these, uh, I forget what these people were from Mexico or no, I think they were Dominican Republic. I, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter where they were from. I mean, these poor people. I mean, it was kind of mean to treat them like this. But <laughs> there were all these, all these old white people trying to throw these poor little brown guys out of <laughs> off their island at the same time, saying how much they loved immigration. I mean, it, it would take a heart of stone not to laugh at that. Well, that, we, that's that's another possibility that some of these governors in these areas that are affected by this. Will finally have had enough and say, I don't care if they yell at me. I'm going to start busing immigrants into these neighborhoods and i mean i i think we also have to keep in mind even though it's funny and it's not to sound too callous because i mean it is kind of cruel to these immigrants to be used this way but you know sometimes you have to break some eggs to make an omelet and uh you know so knock on wood uh desantis uh, figures this out and starts shipping busloads of uh of uh of immigrants back to martha's vineyard again
0: I want to go back to your point about Texas because, yeah, I've lived here. I've actually grown up here most of my life when I moved to the U.S. from Venezuela. And, um, yes, I do agree that there are parts of the state that are becoming um, almost, like, statelets for these cartels and other criminal entities. And I joked one time at a bar with a friend that, like, the Azatlan, like, irredentist like movement that wants to retake lands in the southwest that uh belong to like aztec tribes and other tribes like in mexico it's probably going to be pushed by cartels that's and funny um uh, joking aside i really do think that that the, the these will be the entities that will probably try to do that for not just like spiritual reasons but also for like Just flat out power and um, building their own power, building and expanding their own power bases here. Because when you create this type of like lawless vacuum, it's going to be filled by somebody. And yes, I think that's going to be one of the things. If this problem isn't handled, we're probably going to see, and we're already seeing it already, the the formation of these like statelets that are controlled by cartels, and they're going to turn into like no go zones for for like heritage Americans.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's look, it's how lots of areas of South America work. Uh, I mean, obviously, or, 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 when did you come from Venezuela? Were you a little kid or was it... yeah, a little kid? Yeah, well, then you probably don't remember. But I mean, Venezuela's the a problem. I mean, famously, Venezuela has its own self governing prisons. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> So, oh yeah, you know, the government. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People literally break in to those prisons because it's it's much more stable than being out in the streets because you get like employment and all that. They have like. What's it called? A pran? They're called pranes. They're like these prison chieftains that function as a like parallel governor because of how like failed most of like the Venezuelan state is. And I actually remember one case where they literally had to bring in um, the vice president of the time, Tarek Al-Sami, to um, negotiate at like a um, at a prison to defuse this whole hostage situation because, like, the government could not, like, get these, like, prisons, like, in order and whatnot because these these type
1: of, like, prison chieftains have, like, so much power there. It's a regular occurrence. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, there's a famous story of an American who got busted on drug charges, and I think it was, it was in Venezuela, and uh, he got thrown into one of these prisons, and the, the, the big boss found out he could play guitar. The big boss had, a, a, like, a, his own orchestra so the, he basically protected this American who could play guitar and was actually good at other instruments to form this band that they, the, the guy who ran the prison enjoyed. I mean, you're like, you're, you're looking at the story you're like this is completely crazy, but it's just how it is, you know, and, and it's but it's true in, in parts of Mexico. There's parts of Mexico are now peaceful and and it's a dirty little secret. Some of these like industrial parks and, and business parks are essentially policed by the cartels the cartel, you know, the cartel, because there's no other police. And, uh, you know, cause the, the, the central government is really starting to fall apart. And that, that's going to spread in the United States, I think, too, because our state governments really just, they're not built for managing this problem and they don't have the resources to do it. They, you know, they can't call in an airstrike. They can't use drones to attack. You know, they, there's just limitations they can do. And I think that that might force the issue. Because yeah, again, what's going to happen is some pretty little white girl is going to get killed who happens that her daddy happens to be a state senator or something. You know how it goes. And, you know, that's, that's what kind of starts to, to uh, push this stuff. But, you know, it's, uh, because I mean, look, you know, there's parts of like, um, Minnesota now that are becoming no-go zones because of uh, Somalis. I mean, it's, it's completely insane, you know. But, you know, they, 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 the people who are the beautiful people, they tolerate this because they don't go to those areas. But at some point, those areas come to them. And, um, you know, that's when things will change. But, you know, that, that could take a long time. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because it, you're also getting a, we- you can have a very weird thing with immigration. So you're getting second and third generation of immigrants in this country who are probably more pissed off about immigration than you know, than, than the native population, you know, like the black population has doesn't care about immigration at all in many parts of the country. I don't experience it. You know, they, they don't, they don't bump up against it, but the people who uh like where I live here, we have a large Korean population. They don't like the immigrants coming in because they kind of own the immigrant market. If you get what I mean. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, they're looking at this as economic competition, you know, and uh so it, it's, but no, you know there isn't a consensus for open borders, so it's not like we could vote our way out of it. I mean, there is a consent. You know, there's a consensus for shutting us down for sure, but nobody will run on it until the rich people get get worried about it. I mean, that's that's terribly cynical, but I think that's just the way it is.
0: Yeah, I think something really scary too is there's actually a pretty um as the U.S. um starts becoming more economically unstable you're probably going to see some people especially um a lot of Hispanic Americans that are in the military They're going to become, like, probably cartel hitmen. There's stories of this I read. I think it was on Vice or something where a lot of, like, uh, Hispanic veterans that are in dire economic straits, they just take their talents to Mexico to work in cartels. And that's why, like, you're seeing these, like, super militarized, like, attacks, man. Like, these are not, like, random, like, criminal acts. Like, of, like, with, like... Insane precision and just like brutality conducted by these cartels, and that 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 type of shit's going to be coming northward, and it, it, it could really augur badly for like the U.S.'s like institutional like stability, and you will definitely see certain territories be carved up by cartels at, at that juncture.
1: Yeah, there was a there was a situation, I think uh it was in Mexico where you saw it was clear that these guys the the action they were taking, these were small unit tactics, these were guys who had been trained. They they, they weren't just guys from the neighborhood. These are guys who had training. And you know, they were operating on behalf I forget what the cartel guy was. I think it was this uh, I forget which one it was. But uh you know, it was this is yeah, I mean this is gonna be a, a problem all over. I mean we have a lot of underemployed males who have military training i've actually i was at a a couple years ago i was at a about a year ago i was at an event and i was talking to a couple of young guys and uh they had done time in in iraq and afghanistan and they they did some time as a contractor because we have all these private contractors now that employ these guys but they get tired of that and now they're back home and they're looking for something to do well inevitably they're going to start looking at they're going to be drawn to politics Different kinds of politics. I mean, you see this in Antifa. Antifa's already had some of these guys, who former military guys who just get caught up into because it's something to do. It's adventure, and you know they're they they're, they're comfortable with violence. So um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right, particularly it, it with because it, it c- cuts both ways. I mean, one of the things that people don't realize too is that we created MS13. The United States created essentially MS13. We trained up all these guys in what El Salvador to, as uh, as an army. Well, and then, then we cut them loose. And then they, then we actually imported some of them into the United States. Wow. I mean, you know, so, you know, I mean, so it's not only our, our military policy is, is uh, bad, but our, then we compound it with an immigration policy that we end up with, uh, you know, hyper violent gangs operating in the United States. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's another. And hell, I mean, you've got tens of thousands of mercenaries operating in ukraine now they're going to need work to do in another year i mean it's the world's going to get very going to get all of a sudden very dangerous because of uh lots of ronin lots of ronin looking for a cause
0: yeah (laughs) yeah that's gonna that that's a yeah that's actually another good point too because all the this like flood of weapons into ukraine and uh mercenaries that's just like asking for a ton of um instability abroad It actually segues perfectly into the next segment i want to cover yeah like the russian incursion into ukraine it seems like this is going to be like a protracted affair that in my view is effectively like Ukraine being used as, like, a sacrificial lamb in an uh, effort by, like, the collective West to try to, like, bleed out Russia as much as possible. But due to, like, Russia's um general, like, manpower advantages and its ability to as uh, have, like, escalatory dominance in this theater, it's probably going to attain, like, some type of pyrrhic victory. But it's going to come at a huge cost for the West, especially Europe, in terms of, like, these sanctions that it's imposed on russia that are just blowing up in europe's face do you see that the end result of the russo ukrainian conflict as a um like a total own for nato that could result in its th-
1: disillusion well it's, it's interesting losing wars has consequences and i think you know uh you know someone looked at what this is costing russia and it's about three percent of russian gdp to wage Not just the war in Ukraine, but basically the economic war that's associated with it. That's nothing. That's a small amount. And they can sustain this for a long time. And, you know, conservative estimates say that they, you know, probably once you get the, if if this war lasted three more years, it would start to have an impact economically on Russia and begin to uh, eat into their military industrial capacity. But, you know, they they can augment these things. So they, they can be in it for the long haul. Not forever, though. The West is, it can't. I mean, uh, the Germans have already admitted that they're just, they're actually out of artillery shells now. They have no, they, their warehouses are empty and they have no capacity to make them. So, <laughs> so they have none. You know, all of these Western countries are being exposed to, you know, look, they sent their manufacturing bases uh, to Asia and South America and so forth. So the West can't last. Probably, you know, conservative estimates say by the fall, it's probably going to become a problem for Ukraine. They just will not have the ammunition and weapons to be able to continue to fight the entire front. So we're already starting to see some signs of like the northern front is starting to crack a little bit. And you know the question that is is that do you negotiate a peace or do you allow the Russians to impose a peace? And that's going to have a huge impact on what it mean what what NATO means. And uh, I don't know how it's going to end because I, I'm honestly I'm baffled by the lunacy of this. You know, a, a year ago I pointed out there was a study in uh, some. Uh, royal uh, the royal society of military studies or something like that in britain there was a they, they did a, they did a study on this and showed that that the you know they said that if it turns into a war of attrition nato cannot possibly compete because the russians have this massive industrial base for producing arms and you would know, think that that information available to the general public would lead to the Policymakers saying, "Well, we better avoid a prolonged war of attrition. <laughs> Let's find some way out of this." But they haven't, they're, and they're they're now running out of options. So I, I don't think it'll completely discredit NATO, but I do think we're already seeing cracks. I mean, there's talk about maybe expelling hungary from the eu oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and uh you know that the the of course the turks are going to be a problem for nato because even though they're playing nice with nato right now you can't ever trust them they're always going to you know they're always going to figure out some way to uh to think on you It's just the way this is the way they do business and i think the french the french might be the ones that really becomes a problem the, the, the french political class is in collapse and I mean, even I mean, there's just nothing there. I mean, it, it, things could really spiral out of control quickly in France, and uh, and lead to a real political revolution at the top. So yeah, I mean, it could. I mean, I, I think look, it's just going to be a long process. I think the I think the Russians and Chinese understand this, though. I think they're trying to manage the decline of the American Empire as best they can. You know, I really do think they understand this. I, I, years ago, uh, what two years ago, I, I did a tacky post where I, I found some uh, think tank pieces from Russia and China, where they actually have, you know, they're, they're doing academic work on this, how to manage the American decline. So it, we know they're thinking about it. And I, I think that's what they're up to here. But, but you know, decline, you know, it's hard to manage. You know, it's kind of like a company going into bankruptcy. You know, you you would like to have it very smooth and you go into court and everything is handled well, but it doesn't always work that way. And uh, I think that's true with empires as well. I mean, because you look around at our political class, these people are all dumb. I mean, they're, they're yeah, just dumb. Really dumb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just I mean, it's not just like Democrats either. I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, look, I I, I respect Trump's courage, but this is, you know, he's not a great statesman. You know, <laughs> if, if we if we were any kind of stable society, he would not be president. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you, you could have some respect for your politicians because they were smart. And they had accomplishments. You know, they had either served in, you know, the, the military or in business or something, you know. Name a guy, that, you know, name a politician you'd say, yeah, I can kind of respect what this guy's done. I mean, I guess maybe what, Rand Paul would be the only guy I could think of because uh, he made it through medical school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's one of the more peculiar things now about presidents since I'd say like Bill Clinton, if I'm not mistaken, like ever since like Bill Clinton, like there have not a- been like really many presidents that have like served in like an actual like hot conflict uh whatsoever the, they don't really have like much like a military service now and they're not really exposed to that like the way like other classes of americans have and it has bred a really like detached like leadership class
1: yeah i mean when, when was the last the last president and it's a good question who probably got into a fist fight at least once in his life where there was at least a threat that he got his ass kicked, you know, I I, I can't think of it. I mean, you know, Trump probably did because apparently when Trump was a young man, he was a bit of a, you know, a a hell raiser. So maybe, I guess that's not a good exception, but uh, Biden certainly never did. Uh, Clinton never did. You can be sure of that. He can be always sure. You can be sure he was always the guy. He was the guy who brings the guitar to the party and leaves with somebody else's girlfriend, you know, and, uh, you know, (laughs) But, uh, you know, before him, Bush the first, maybe, I don't know, he had a drug problem. So that's, you know, you can get in trouble that way. But, you know, I mean, it's just, there's not a lot of, like, normal men that, you know, there was a guy, I forget what his name is anymore. He wrote a, a post. He's like a, a, he was a physics instructor, but he was like a physicist or something. And he said, never trust any man who's never been punched in the face. And he, he went through the explanations of it just from a scientific perspective. You're like, you know, you're absolutely right. We, we instinctively know this. You know, you meet, you know, if you meet some guy, you know, in, you know, an event or, you know, social life or whatever, you can kind of tell, is this a guy that, you know, if it really gets down to it, he'll, uh, clinch a fist. He, he doesn't know. And that's how you judge him, you know, and you look at our polit- males in our political class. These are all guys who avoid those circumstances completely. You know, so I mean, that, that's why they don't go into the service. I don't, you know, that if they go into the service, it's as a lawyer. You know, they're a jank officer somewhere. You know, I mean, maybe, um, maybe where our political selection process should be that they actually have to have a cage match. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Go back to the old Germanic style, you know, where you know, trial by combat. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they definitely need to have like that and certain lifting requirements on the big three lifts like squat, bench, and deadlift before <laughs> before like
1: even like entering public office. Yeah, you know it's funny about the whole weightlifting thing. I never ever in a million years had any thought political thoughts about weightlifting. I've never really liked uh, long distance running. I mean, I, I did when I was a young person playing sports. You, you have to have endurance. So I, I wrestled. So endurance is hugely important. You had to have it, but. But, you know, I was more attracted to just basic weightlifting. And I never thought of the political aspects of it, but it turns out to be absolutely true. You know, people who, you know, you're seeing this now, all these... uh New York Times, I think, has an article out that if you uh, lift weights, you're probably a fascist. fascist yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's actually, like, some interesting stuff, too, about how there are, a like, class distinctions, too, when you um, go to, like, a gym or whatever, like, the so-called swoletariat where you have a lot of, like, jacked, like, bodybuilders or even, like, powerlifters uh engage with like free weights or like barbell lifts these tend to be like more like working class like roughneck people but then like when you look at the people like using like cardio machines and whatnot those tend to be like the more like upper middle class professional managerial class types it's like pretty interesting like what
1: type of uh, backgrounds people have like in the exercises they do yeah i mean it's it's funny i mean i'm a i'm an old guy so exercise changes when you get old but it, it's um yeah, but, but that's one of those things. So weightlifting is something you can do until you're an old old person. You know, it's it's not like running and you know other kinds of like cardiovascular stuff. I mean, there gets a point where your joints can't take it, so you can't do it anymore. But you can always you know lift weights. You know, but it, it's funny that I, I never really thought of it that way. I used to I used to run this hill near where I live, and it had this um, athletic club. It was like one of those um, uh, sort of uh, upper middle class places, and it had all this glass. And I would be running up this hill just to work on my cardio. And you would see these people looking out at me, and they were probably wondering, why is that idiot running up a hill? And I'd be thinking, why are these people paying when they could just go outside and do this? <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, it was the most insane thing I ever saw. You'd see, I mean, it was like hundreds of people running on treadmills looking outside.
0: Yeah, I, that, that's actually funny, because I, I come from a track high school, like track background, and I, I did like the 400 and 800. So I did tons, tons of hill running and other forms of exercises outside and i would be like constantly running and yeah i don't think i i think the last time i used like a treadmill man was probably in like middle school to be honest when i first started getting into like exercise i rarely use them like because i prefer just to run like in like the street or like a track or some type of trail
1: yeah i mean look i've never really been into it's one of those things when i was a young guy i wrestled and you you just run you run hills. I mean that's a, that was the easiest way to build up your officially your you know your for short bursts. I mean because that wrestling is a lot of short bursts. So yeah, yeah I think you run hills well. and that, Yeah, so you know you run hills and I still do it now. I got a big hill behind me. You know as I've gotten older, like I've had injuries and stuff. I'll just walk the hill. You know as much as I can do maybe. You know because I've got you know something going on. But uh, you know yeah, I mean I, I, it's it's free. You know <laughs> it yeah, doesn't yeah. cost you anything. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good place to bring this conversation to a close, Z-Man. It was great
1: chatting with you. Absolutely. I always enjoy it anytime. So where can my audience keep up with your latest work? Best place to go is the z that has links to all the places I'll turn up, my podcasts, my uh, pay-per-view sites. Um, I even have my social media stuff linked up on there. That's the easiest way to find me. And there's something there every day try to keep it interesting, mix things up. And I I probably have the best comment section on the internet, so you can join the comment section if you don't even uh, really enjoy my content that much.
0: Awesome stuff, man. And like always, my dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.